You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. In his opening narration tonight, Rod Sailing talks about those little towns tucked away from the main roads. And he says you've seen them, or have you thought about them? And tonight we're going to take a moment to do just that. How many times have we sat down and opened a book, or pressed play on our movie of choice, and found ourselves in the shoes of a person entering a small town with a secret? and perhaps, through their own isolation, being tucked away from those main roads, they've developed their own quirks and peculiarities independent of the outside world. The origins of that trope go back further than I will ever discover, but some famous examples certainly spring to mind. If we consider The Shadow Over Innsmouth by H.P. Lovecraft, where there's this dank and rotten town filled with dank and rotten fish-like people. And our narrator visits the town where he's tolerated to a degree, except for when he starts to become a little too curious. Often in these stories, the town's secret is something supernatural, but not always. Sometimes, the people of the town might close ranks to cover up a murder or a particularly unique way of life. In 1973, Police Sergeant Neil Howie travelled to the remote island of Summer Isle to investigate the disappearance of a young girl. And while there, he finds the locals to be a very unique group of people indeed. Happy to indulge their sexual desires, where and when they please, the people of the town adhere to their own brand of paganism and follow a charismatic leader in the shape of Lord Summerisle, played by Christopher Lee. And again, when Sergeant Howie arrives, he is treated with suspicion, but tolerated. And the film is, of course, The Wicker Man, and when Sergeant Howie begins to dig too deep, he becomes very well acquainted with the Wicker Man himself. So this is another feature of this type of story. If you find yourself in one of these towns being eyed up suspiciously by the locals, if you just buy a few items from the local shop or fill up your gas tank, you might just be allowed to go on your way, blissfully unaware of the danger you were in. But if you start to dig too deep, then that's when things start to go wrong. And when Philip Redfield drives to one of those off the main road towns, initially it appears that he might just fill up his gas tank and be on his way. It's a nice little town you got here. What do you what do you call this place? Peaceful Valley. It's peaceful, all right. Is there a restaurant or anything? Up there. 
up the street. But it's closed. You'll be better off in breeding. Well, I know, but I'm hungry right now. So is my dog. Well, I'm sorry. We don't get many visitors here. Well, I can see why. So more often than not, when these travelers arrive in these secluded towns, the secret they keep is one of darkness, death, and the occult. But this is the Atomic Age, an age when the science fiction writers were dreaming up what in some cases would become science fact in a few years down the line. So what if that secret wasn't a dark one? What if we switched the occult for science and technology? Tonight we're driving to Peaceful Valley to watch as a well-worn horror trope gets a Twilight Zone twist in Valley of the Shadow. You've seen them. Little towns tucked away far from the main roads. You've seen them, but have you thought about them? What do the people in these places do? Why do they stay? Philip Redfield never thought about them. If his dog hadn't gone after that cat, he would have driven through Peaceful Valley and put it out of his mind forever. But he can't do that now. Because whether he knows it or not, his friend's shortcut has led him right into the capital of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on January 17th, 1963. Written by Charles Beaumont and directed by Perry Lafferty. So the third episode in a row for Perry Lafferty and then he disappears off into the fifth dimension. Or maybe not quite. But what a strange little short directing career he had. And I don't recall an instance of three episodes on the run being made by the same director. Although the Twilight Zone wasn't always filmed in order of transmission, so it wasn't necessarily the case that these three episodes were filmed back to back. It's just that they were broadcast back to back. Now, in his image, Perry Lafferty's first episode was filmed between July 31st and August 7th of 1962. The 30 Fathom Grave between October 9th and 16th and Valley of the Shadow between November 1st and 8th. So there was a bit of a gap between episodes and then the fourth episode in the season, which is directed by Stuart Rosenberg, was filmed between September 13th and 20th, so that's before Perry Lafferty's last two episodes. And not only was this the end of Perry Lafferty directing The Twilight Zone, but it was almost the end of his directing career completely because he only directed two television specials after this called Arthur Godfrey Sounds of New York and Arthur Godfrey Loves Animals, which sounds just delightful. So three episodes into season four, this is the second to be written by the great Charles Beaumont, who actually writes five episodes in season four in total. And when you consider that there are only 18 episodes in it, that's just over a quarter of this season. So maybe he's taking a bit of the weight off Rod Sailing while he was away teaching in college. Now this is quite a trivia light episode, not a great deal to work with, but early on we have a few Twilight Zone references and Martin Grams Jr. goes into this in Unlocking the Door to a television classic. He says that the dirt road leading in and out of Peaceful Valley with trees on both sides will be used again in the episode Death Ship. 
And he also says that when Redfield is having his car filled with gas, we can see a set of cellar doors in the background and they were used in the Buster Keaton episode, Once Upon a Time. And also the corner of the building that Redfield parks next to at the beginning was actually the general storefront in the episode Hocus Pocus and Frisbee. But of course, maybe the biggest Twilight Zone reference is the gas station attendant played by Sandy Kenyon in his third and final Twilight Zone after appearing in the Odyssey of Flight 33 and then the shelter. So a couple of heavy hitter episodes as far as I'm concerned and I always enjoy his contribution to the Twilight Zone. I think he is one of the most recognisable supporting players in it. Now prior to the opening narration, Philip Redfield's dog chased after a cat and a little girl with a strange device made the dog disappear. And that little girl was the actress Suzanne Capito and now she is known as Morgan Brittany. And in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, she says, I love doing The Twilight Zone. Because I was so young, I do not recall much of the production, but I must have left an impression because I was called in to do another episode, and that one I remember very well. I received fan letters from all over because I was on the show. I was treated like a queen at a recent Twilight Zone convention. If I had known then what I know today, I would have saved something worthwhile so my fans would know more about the series. And Morgan did break the curse of the child actor and went on to have a good television career, perhaps best known for her role in Dallas, where she played Catherine Wentworth, the half-sister of Pam Ewing and Cliff Barnes. And apparently later on, she went on to be a television political commentator. So back in our episode, when Philip Redfield goes looking for his dog, we meet the little girl's dad. You scared my little girl. Well, that makes us even. Your little girl scared me. What do you mean by that? Just what I said. Now, look, I don't know what she did, but she made my dog disappear. What? Look, she, she pointed some kind of a machine at my dog and he disappeared. Are you feeling all right? No, I never feel all right when I see that kind of thing. It makes my blood pressure rise. Easy now, mister. Let's look around the yard. He's bound to be here somewhere. So a nice little appearance by James Doohan, who was six years later, of course, become immortalised in Star Trek, playing Montgomery Scott. And he finds Redfield's dog for him and then says that the device that his daughter was holding was simply her radio. So this is clearly a town with a secret. People speak to Redfield, but there is an air of evasiveness about them and they're not exactly making him feel welcome. I want to talk to Dorn. He's not here. Well, you better find him. It's important. We've got an outsider. And he saw something. So let's stop a moment and look at the town of Peaceful Valley because I find myself very much enjoying the location, but also being slightly frustrated by it. I like it because I love small town America and this has given us a little bit of a different take on that than we usually see in the Twilight Zone. It's not the more historical Western type of America that we often see, but, but it's actually set in the present day and we still have a very traditional look to it, but there's a lot of greenery around and I imagine if you walk five minutes in any direction, 
you'd probably find yourself in the countryside at a fishing pond or some beautiful wide open space. But I suppose what frustrates me about it is that every time we are outside, everything is filmed right up close to the buildings. We never really get a sense of the bigger space, the layout of the town or even a good look at the main street because when we do see that, I'm not exactly sure where it was filmed, but it looks like a kind of western cowboy set. There's a blacksmith there and so on, and there's no tarmac on the road, it's all just dust. So, I get that they were working with what they had, but it does kind of rob us of a bigger sense of what this town is actually like. But I suppose what they are able to do is really convey the isolation of this place. It does feel empty, and they are able to achieve that without having a shot of a deserted main street or something similar, but I would still like to have seen it. Now I am going to jump forward a bit in the story and pass the introduction of an important character, Ellen Marshall, played by Natalie Trundy. Because this is an episode with not much trivia to it, it's easy to just end up narrating the story, which I don't want to do because... What's the point of that? So let's jump forward to a part of the story for which there is some trivia. Now Philip decides that he's going to leave town and, and had he done that after he filled his gas tank, then they probably would have let him go on his way and everybody would have been happy. But he's seen too much and as he drives out of town, his car seems to hit an invisible wall. Are you alright sir? My dog is dead. I don't know how this could have happened. There wasn't a car around anywhere. Perhaps it was a rock. But wouldn't it be around somewhere? Well, you could have knocked it into the woods. Come along, Mr. Redfield. We've got to get you to a doctor. We'll take care of your car. What about my dog? Well, we'll take care of your dog, too. You'll have nothing to worry about. So in the Twilight Zone companion, Mark Zickri spoke to Perry Lafferty and he said, the script required us to create the illusion of an automobile driving down a country road and hitting an invisible wall, causing the car to be more or less demolished. We got a very effective sequence out of it by buying two old identical cars and wrecking the front of one of them. Through a series of cuts, the car was made to appear to slam into an unseen obstruction. The critical portion of the sequence was achieved by putting a one inch chain around the back axle and running it with about 20 feet of slack to a steady nearby tree where it was tied off. By framing a portion of the road, a stuntman drove the car into the frame of the camera and, when the slack was used up, was slammed against the steering wheel. The camera was undercranked, thereby giving the impression of considerably more speed than the 12 miles per hour the car was travelling. We then put the leading actor into the car and made a quick cut of him going forward precisely when the car hit the wall. We then switched the good car for the identical wrecked one and made another angle head on to the car showing the front end pushed in. The only thing humorous about this whole episode, and it is slightly grisly, is that the professional stuntman hired to do the gag went into the steering wheel so hard 
even at 10 or 12 miles per hour, that we had to call an ambulance and cart him off to the hospital. And I think all that effort really paid off. I think it's quite effective. We don't expect it. So they're able to edit it in such a way and use all these certain factors to make a really effective scene there. So well done all round on that. And after this incident, Redfield goes back into town and meets the town council or elders or whatever you want to call them. And he's questioned about what he knows. But that's not actually the part of the scene that interests me. What interests me is this part. After they've been speaking to Redfield. Well, gentlemen. It's happened. It had to eventually. No. It didn't have to. And it wouldn't have if we kept our wits about us, but we didn't. We were so complacent, so infernally sure of ourselves and complacent. Dorn. Mr. Evans, would you explain the point of keeping the hotel open and the restaurant closed? No, I don't think... Doesn't it seem more likely that there would be more inquiries for food than for rooms? There hasn't been either in over 16 years. You see, complacency. And I'm as much to blame as anyone. If only the little Johnson girl hadn't been so careless, if only Fredericks hadn't acted suspiciously at the gasoline station, if only I hadn't panicked and raised the wall. You had to. There wasn't any choice by then. So now, an innocent young man who hasn't done anyone any harm must suffer for our mistakes. So how many times have we seen stories where aliens come to Earth and they have this great wisdom and great technology and they look at Earthlings, this primitive warlike race, and they find us to be unworthy? Now granted, this is not an alien story, but it is a story that is treading the same familiar ground as films like When the Earth Stood Still, except this time it's humans who have been gifted knowledge instead of aliens who have it. And it's humans who are keeping that knowledge to themselves for fear of everyone else who they consider to not be ready for it, using it. But what I like about it is that the character of Dawn often seems quite conflicted. On the one hand, here he is saying that they were too complacent, they should have been more careful. But throughout it, he actually seems to be quite impressed by Redfield. He seems to admire his spirit and acknowledges that he actually hasn't done anything wrong. He's really just came into town and tried to buy some gas. So in this ever more divided world where disagreement on anything is so often now seen as an absolute barrier between people, it's good to see a character who does have a certain amount of conflict in him. On the one hand, Dawn is sticking to what he believes is the right thing to do, but on the other, he completely understands why Redfield feels the way he feels and acts the way he does. He doesn't say he's wrong to feel that way. So Beaumont is really bringing some interesting levels to this character. But after meeting with Dawn, Redfield goes back into town and tries to get his car back. So while he does that, let's meet the man who played him. So Philip Redfield is played by Ed Nelson and I think at this stage in his career he had a bit of a Kirk Douglas vibe about him 
You know, he's handsome with a slightly rough edge to him. And he was born in New Orleans in 1928, and he originally wanted a legal career, but got into acting when he was in college. And when he did start working, he was a bit of a jack of all trades. He would pretty much do whatever needed to be done on set. He worked as an assistant director at a New Orleans TV station, and he narrated and wrote episodes of a New Orleans cop show called NOPD, and he even worked for Roger Corman on the movie Swamp Women, where he says he did pretty much everything from being location manager to starring in the movie and even wrestling an alligator. But when he got established, he truly became one of our hardworking actors of the day, with 192 credits to his name, and many of those credits had multiple episodes to them. And then factor into that, that a year after The Twilight Zone, he began working on one of America's first soap operas, and that show was called Peyton Place, where he stayed between 1964 and 1969, and took part in a massive 514 episodes. Now considering that he was such a hard working actor and he retired in 2003, I feel I should know his work a bit more, but then when I look down his list of credits, a lot of the shows that he worked on never really crossed over the pond, or if they did, he was only in one or two episodes as a guest star. And I do like him, I can see how he would be a sought after television actor, a small screen Kirk Douglas if you like, and he has the requisite steely determination that you would need for a role like this. He's not a man who's just gonna be put down, he's gonna find a way out. And this episode actually has echoes of the British television show The Prisoner, which came later in 1967, which is one of my favourite shows of all time. Now it's not exactly like that, but there are echoes there. And I think if there was an American version made at the time, I think Ed Nelson would have made a decent fit for the main character of number six, who was played by Patrick McGowan. So what exactly is going on in this town? Well, Dawn is about to tell us. Our gift, Mr. Redfield, bestowed upon the people of this village 104 years ago. A man came to Peaceful Valley from what land or what planet nobody knows. He was a brilliant scientist, many hundreds of years before his time, but he was also wise, as you shall see. From his brain came equations the likes of which no one had ever seen or dreamt of. Not on this planet, at any rate. Of course, I cannot tell you what they are. Mr. Redfield, you are aware, I trust, that the basis of this complicated thing we call life is energy. It's a frightening and mysterious force. The scientists' equations unlock this force, and from it came the greatest power for good or evil the universe has ever known. He decided to entrust his secrets, the, his equations and the machines that he had built, to three men he had selected, and he instructed them to give the benefit of this power to the people of Peaceful Valley for their comfort, but under no circumstances were they to release the secret to the outside world. It was to remain in Peaceful Valley until humanity learned the ways of peace. 
So who was this man who bestowed this technology on them? Is this supposed to be some sort of religious allegory? Is he supposed to be a Christ figure? But instead of bestowing wisdom and healing, this man gave them technology and the ability to heal themselves. Or is it simply supposed to be a random alien or time traveler merely there as a setup device? Now the episode doesn't go into who this man is at all, because really speaking, it doesn't matter. What's important is how people have reacted to what he has brought and what they'll do next. So I think the religious allegory angle is there if you want to try and run with it, but I'm not sure it truly fits because religious faiths will usually want to spread that faith, bring other people into it. But this group is very much trying to keep isolated and not spread what they have. So it's certainly a conversation and I would be interested to hear other people's thoughts on that. But I think that the real point of all this is the truth of humanity, that we are an imperfect race. And when we are given a gift, there are those who will exploit it for their own ends. So what do you do with that? Do you wait and hope that a more enlightened time will come? Do you release the technology but try and control it? Do you trust in humanity that they will do the right thing? Because do any of us listening to this think that humanity always does the right thing? Do you have any idea what you have down there? But of course. And you mean you don't intend to share it with the rest of the world? Oh, good heavens, no. Why? Well, I've already explained, Mr. Redfield. The world isn't ready. But Peaceful Valley is. Well, obviously. We have no war here, no crime, no violence, no greed. Unlike your world, we live in peace. We use the power for good, not for evil. Well, how can you be sure the rest of us wouldn't? Come now, Mr. Redfield. The history of civilization has been written in blood. But that's because people wanted things. With that power, we could... With this power, they would destroy the universe. They're children. But this one machine, it could stop sickness and sufferings. It could cure disease. Well, couldn't it? So Dawn goes on to show Redfield exactly what they can do. Now, this visitor who gave them this technology was a great man of science, but apparently he hadn't invented the hard drive or digital media because they kept the recipes for replicating all these items in a room full of filing cabinets. But this is an aspect of 50s and 60s sci-fi that I quite like, that they are reaching for the future, but using the language and the tools that they have available at that time. And it's why you'll see pictures of robots rendered with transistors and cogs, because that's their technology reaching forward. Now, while I did mention that Dawn seemed conflicted at times, when it comes down to it, conflicted or not, his ultimatum to Redfield is join us or die. You can be eliminated in one of two ways. Through death or through assimilation. The choice is yours. Will you die or will you join us? You mean live here the rest of my life? Exactly. Become one of us. It really won't be so bad. We'll provide you with a fine house, built to your specifications, plenty of food, 
time to write that novel. All your wants seem to. So, of course, Redfield says he will cooperate because you would, even if you didn't intend to. But really, he's looking for his chance to escape. But he finds himself in a house and he is paid a visit by Ellen Marshall. Now, we met Ellen earlier on in the episode when Redfield was searching through the town. He found himself in a hotel with a lot of vacancies. So Ellen comes back to visit, but there is a kind of change of scene where we see that he's changed his clothes, and I wonder whether that's supposed to say that a period of time has passed. It doesn't really say how long that is, or how often Ellen has been there, because when she comes back into the house, there is clearly a vibe between them. Is this really happening? All over the world. Every minute of the day or night, somebody is dying alone. Somebody that you could help. Oh, don't say that. Why not? What difference does it make? But... But what would you do? A terrible thing. I'd take your secrets and give it to the world. You mean you'd... You'd steal them and run away. Very fast. But you promised Dawn that... Look, Karen, I, I promised myself first. I, I'd try and be some kind of a, a decent human being. I may, maybe even try and help somebody out. What's the use? You don't even know what I mean. You never wanted anything you couldn't whip up in ten seconds in one of your little machines. So Ellen seems to have some feelings for Philip, and on the one hand, it does seem a bit sudden. But on the other hand, we do find out later that she's been instructed to do this by Dawn. Although she says it wasn't all an act, and she certainly appears to have some feelings for him that we see later on. And I think that very much plays into the point of the episode too. That these people have these great gifts of technology, and all the ham sandwiches that a person could want, but by isolating themselves, they're missing out on all of the things that other people have to offer. The joys of travel, seeing new places, and everything that comes with it. So when someone new does come into town, Ellen becomes quite taken with them. And Ellen was played, of course, by Natalie Trundy, so here is an actress who bridges the gap between two Rod Serling universes, and we'll come back to that in a moment. She was born in 1940, so would have been about 23 at this point, but she had already been a screen actress since the age of 13, and we find her here actually about halfway through her acting career. She was a Boston native, and in 1956, at the age of 15, she did a film called The Monte Carlo Story, and one of the other actors in the film was Marlena Dietrich. And Marlena Dietrich's agent at the time was a man who would go on to become a movie producer, and his name was Arthur P. Jacobs, the man who would one day hire Rod Serling to write Planet of the Apes. Now at the age of 18, Trundy married a man called Charles Hershen, but the marriage was annulled less than a year later, and around the time she made this Twilight Zone, she was only acting part-time while she attended college, and she did intend to return to acting full-time. 
But unfortunately, later in 1963, after this episode was released, she was hit by a car in New York and sustained a major back injury that held up her career. And she did carry on acting, but with only 38 credits to her name, she perhaps missed out on her hard-working Actor of the Day badge. But that's certainly understandable because of her injury. So in 1968, she was reintroduced to Arthur P. Jacobs, who had made the first Planet of the Apes movie, and they actually became married and he was 18 years her senior. And although she didn't appear in the original Planet of the Apes, she did appear in all of the sequels to that film. She was in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, where she played the mutant Albina, and then in Escape from Planet of the Apes, she played the human doctor. But in Battle and Conquest of Planet of the Apes, she donned ape makeup to play the character of Lisa, who was the mate of the ape revolutionary, Caesar. So she is one of only nine actors to play the same role in more than one Planet of the Apes movie in the original series. And Hare and Roddy McDowell are the only actors to appear in four of the five movies. But I believe she is the only actor to appear as both human and ape in the series. And when you look at her in her ape makeup as Lisa, there is a very unique look to it because she has these very distinctive, quite doll-like eyes. Now sadly, her marriage to Arthur Jacobs ended five years later when he passed away in 1973, but she did go on to marry three more times. And after the Apes movie, she was only really in a handful of things, but she retired from the screen in 1978. But her life after acting was one that was well lived because she traveled multiple times per year to volunteer at Mother Teresa's hospice in Calcutta, bringing with her medicine and supplies for the poor. And we only actually lost her last year at the age of 79. So in our story, with the help of Ellen, Redfield steals the book that contains the formulas that would allow him to replicate the technology in the town. And then they go on their way. But all is not how it seems, and soon he finds himself back in town and answering to Dawn. You see what would happen, Mr. Redfield, if we gave our secret to the outside world? The very first thing you do is make a weapon. The second you kill with it. It tricked me. Yes. And you. Everything a lie. Not everything, Philip. She cooperated because she thought you would prove your good intentions, as I did. My colleagues were right. You were just like the others. If the end is just, so are the means, whatever they may be. Pity. So Redfield has his memory wiped and is sent along on his way. Now the Orlando, Florida Sentinel at the time said, We have just struggled and suffered in silence through 60 minutes, including commercials, of Twilight Zone only to learn that the strange happenings were but the daydreams of the newspaper man involved, which is a bit inaccurate really because they weren't his daydreams, they did actually happen, so it's hard to say whether they actually understood that. 
But Mark Zikri in The Twilight Zone Companion says, Although Valley of the Shadow is entertaining, the story is so lacking in nuance and the background detail that it never totally involves the viewer. We are told the Peaceful Valley is a town whose inhabitants live richful lives, but we are never shown how they do live. We see less than a dozen of the 981 people and none in their normal day-to-day -day routines. The characters are cardboard through and through, and while this does not ruin the story, it does tend to make it more theoretical than dramatic. I think I like this episode a bit more than Mark Zikri, but I think he makes a fair point here. We don't really see anything that makes this an appealing place to live, unless you really like ham sandwiches, and we see a couple of the devices that they have, but they're used in not particularly exciting ways, apart from when the guy gets stabbed I suppose. But these people essentially live without sickness and they want for nothing, and that does sound appealing. But what we see is just a very cold, barren town. And when Philip Redfield is offered the chance to stay, there's nothing that makes us wonder why he should, except maybe Ellen. But then again, I can also see that maybe that's the point. That these people with their high and mighty attitude, by isolating themselves in their supposed utopia, have cut themselves off from things that actually make life worth living. Spontaneity, speaking with and enjoying interaction with people other than themselves, and life just generally being that bit more unpredictable. And then there's also this theme of humanity misusing the gifts that they have. If this technology was brought to the wider world, would it be used to make people's lives better or would it be patented, marketed and sold to the highest bidder? And I think what the episode is saying is that there are no easy answers for any of this. Because we agree with Philip Redfield when he says that there are people dying out there who could be helped by this technology. But we can also see where Dawn is coming from. Because he was right. The first thing that Redfield did when he got his hands on the technology was make a weapon. They keep this technology to themselves because they don't think humanity can be trusted with it. And the sad thing is, they're probably right. Now I haven't mentioned the running time with this episode because it didn't really seem like an issue. I thought it justified its length just fine and I don't necessarily think this is one that would benefit from being shorter. I like this episode quite a bit. It's a solid mid-tier Twilight Zone. But what I do notice three episodes into season four is that we haven't really had a Twilight Zone magic type episode. An episode where the unexplained is dropped into someone's life like a pebble in a pond and we watch the ripple. Valley of the Shadow and In His Image have their basis in technology. The 30 Fathom Grave was a ghost story, but none of them yet have really tackled that Twilight Zone situation where someone's reality is suddenly altered and their journey through it gives them some sort of lesson. Maybe to fill the running time they are going for deeper mysteries rather than the simple fabulistic tales that you watch but also instinctively absorb. And that's not necessarily a bad thing and we are only three episodes in to season four. So maybe there's still time yet. You've seen it. 
Little towns tucked away far from the main roads. You've seen them, but have you thought about them? Have you wondered what the people do in such places, why they stay? Philip Redfield thinks about them now, and he wonders, but only very late at night, when he's between wakefulness and sleep in the twilight zone. So that is episode 105 of The Twilight Zone. So that means we have, in our next episode, that's our 50-episode countdown. So there's only 50 episodes left. Now, with the rate these come out, it'll still take a while. But Valley of the Shadow, bit of a tricky one, I thought. There wasn't much trivia, and there were themes there, but they were very much the kind of typical humanities not ready for this uh, type of thing. So... Bit of a difficult one to get really anything going on, I found. And all you can really do is kind of use what trivia you have and give a general review of it. But, you know, that's the thing with the Twilight Zone. Next time round, you might get an episode like Dust, which ends up being like a, a big rabbit hole that you go down. But So that's okay. Now, not much to mention this week. The Rondo Award uh, ballot is still open until the 29th of March. So if you want to cast your vote for the Twilight Zone podcast, all you need to do is email taraco at aol.com. That's T-A-R-A-C-O at aol.com and put your name in the email and say, please cast my vote for the Twilight Zone podcast at thetwilightzonepodcast.com in the best multimedia site category. But if you've got a bit of time on your hands, why not go over to rondoaward.com, check out the full ballot of all the different categories. There's lots of different uh, things, books, art, and so on. So it's a, you know, a really nice independent award. So if you do have a bit of time now, please cast your vote for the Twilight Zone podcast. So no listener feedback this month, but if you want to get your thoughts on the show about any of the episodes we've discussed in season four so far, or the next episode, then please email a clip of no more than five minutes to tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com and get your voice on the show next time. Let's try and keep this going. And don't worry too much about the time. And you know, I'd say after this episode is released, if you want to get your thoughts on about the next one, then try and get it to me within one to two weeks. But the thing is, if it runs over, it can always go into the next one anyway. It's not like a regimented thing. So don't worry too much about the timing. Okay, so before I go, I just want to say thank you to Neil Clark, a fellow Liverpudlian, for jumping on board over on Patreon. And also, the signpost ahead. Thank you for jumping on board as well. I appreciate it. So if you want to support the show and get extra content, then please go over to patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast. And there's a whole host of stuff like reviews of the 80s show and Night Gallery, it's all over there. And if you want to join the chat over on FlickChat, then download the FlickChat app and then search for the group Twilight Zone. Okay, so to start our 50-episode countdown, let's go over to Rod Sailing to find out what's coming up next. We move next on Twilight Zone into a shadowy area that treads a very thin line between flesh and fantasy. You'll see a performance by Dennis Hopper that, even from my rather close-in perspective, strikes me as an exceptional one. Our story is called He's Alive, and if this doesn't get you where you live, you'll find it close by in the suburbs. You need medical attention? We don't need any. Okay, Jack. 
Hey, Jack. You forgot your, um, your flag. There'll come a day when guys like you will crawl on your belly just to salute this. Who's out there? Who is it? A friend, Mr. Volmer. Come down, Mr. Volmer. Come down and we will talk. <laughs> 